Hi, my name is Leslie Perrot, and this is my husband, Peter. These are pictures of our daughter, Allison. She left our home in Summerhill Avenue in Toronto on Friday morning at 11.30. She hasn't been home since. If you know anything at all about Allison's whereabouts, please call the police. If you're the person who's taken our daughter, please, please bring her home. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and thank you very much for tuning in. On this week's episode, we will be concluding the case of Allison Peratt. In the first episode of this series, Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast and I discussed the nuts and bolts of Allison's abduction and murder. There were some striking similarities between her disappearance and that of Amy Mahalovic. They were both lured by a ruse over the telephone, and both girls never came back. In Allison's case, they did eventually find her killer. So in this week's episode, we will find out who killed Allison Peratt. What's your favorite event? Yeah. More of 800 and 1500, really, because I like long distances. What you heard there was Allison speaking to a local reporter regarding her running career. And what we know is that Allison disappeared near Varsity Stadium in downtown Toronto in 1986. She had supposedly set up a meeting with a photographer. And it was about 6.30 p.m., or four hours since Allison was supposed to return home, that her mom decided to call police. A massive search began two hours later. It involved about 150 police officers and roughly 24 friends and neighbors. Leslie Peratt and her husband Peter, an engineer, searched through hot, rainy evenings looking through the stadium, the vacant lots, the alleys, and ravines. The search was covered heavily by television and radio, and what you heard at the beginning of this episode was Allison's mother making a plea or an appeal to her potential killer. I'd like to play another clip from the radio spots that they were putting out over the weekend that Allison had gone missing. And you can clearly tell in the sound of her voice that she is in despair. And understandably so, as anybody would be if their child was missing. And Allison, honey, if you just had a bad day and you're feeling a little bit scared about coming home or, or whatever, you know we're always here for you, no matter what. Unfortunately, just two days after Allison's disappearance, two boys discovered her body in a West End park. Allison's body was nude. There was uh, no clothing around the scene. Uh, there, was, there was no evidence uh, on the body, as I recall, that would indicate that this uh, may or may not be the, the scene of her death. In fact, the body was, uh, was very clean. Allison's mother had told investigators that she was a regular user of the Toronto subway system. So after the discovery of her body, the police assigned 60 officers to search all of the garbage that had been collected in the subway system since July 25th. 
Allison's killing took a toll in the city, much like Amy's killing has done the same to Bay Village. The way both girls were stalked is another reason these killings still resonate today. And as I mentioned in part one, Allison was a runner. Albeit a newbie to the sport, she had talent. She won the first race she entered, and the local papers covered her accomplishment. Police at the time believed that Allison's killer was also probably aware of her running, and that's probably when he began to stalk her. They had no forensic link between Mr. Roy and the murder scene, and as a result of that, in consultation, they decided that there wasn't enough um, evidence to arrest Mr. Roy. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of cases in the 1980s went. You could have fluids, you could have DNA, skin cells, all that good stuff, but you had nothing to run it against and no technology to even discover what evidence may have been there. So at the time, the police had little evidence, and so in order to get the public's attention, they offered a reward of $50,000 just to help track down the killer. And again, as I mentioned, the DNA technology didn't exist in 1986, but as I mentioned, there were fluids found on Allison's body. An article from a 1986 piece about Allison's disappearance references a technology that they were using at the time. You know, and it's kind of interesting to hear or read about these older ways that they would come across information or examine these bodies. Because the paper states, and quote, Investigators used a laser beam to scan the girl's body for fingerprints, hairs, or other traces that might identify the abductor. Sounds pretty primitive today, doesn't it? But, again, this was 1986, so even though they had thought the killer was Francis Carl Roy, they had no way of actually arresting him or connecting him to the crime. Although Roy fit a lot of the profile that would have been perfect for the person who would have abducted Allison, he kind of checked every box. He was a runner. He lived near Allison. He would have known about her running accomplishments. So, you know, for about 10 years, Francis Carl Roy got to walk around a free man. But that all changed in 1996 when they finally got around to testing the DNA that they did have. And they were able to finally prove once and for all that Francis Carl Roy was indeed the killer. And as it's seen out of like a movie or a television show, the police started stalking Roy's movements. And for days they would play cat and mouse And it wasn't until he had discarded a cigarette butt that they hit the jackpot. And Dr. Wayne Murray describes what can be found in the butt of a cigarette. We've analyzed cigarette butts. Uh, I had people in my laboratory just walk around uh, mocking the smoking of of cigarette butts. And and we get a sample uh, more times than not. After a few weeks, test results came back. And the head of the cold case detective unit Received a phone uh, call. It was on February 22nd. There was a telephone call. It's actually a voicemail message left for me. And it was a request uh, from uh, Christine Wozni for background information on a fellow by the name of Francis Carl Roy. Yes. 
that Francis Carl Roy, the same one that was interviewed in 1986, the same person that lived near Allison, the same man who had been interviewed repeatedly about this case, but was somehow unable to be held accountable or charged until the DNA technology existed. I received a pager call on my, I received the message on my pager rather, from Pam Newell, and the message was, Vic, you got him. This is where the case gets a little too graphic, and I'm going to do my best to skirt around the actual defense that Francis Carl Roy used, but I will have to get into a little bit of what he did claim. And as Nick said at the end of the episode last week, or I should say two weeks ago, he'll let me discuss this part, because it is pretty gross. So let's at least start with the interrogation tapes and what he had to say the day that he was arrested 10 years after Allison was found dead. Before uh, we get started with uh, a few things I want to discuss with you, would you like a coffee? Yes. Okay, regular? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Just a tiny bit of cream. Tiny cream? Cold case detectives at this point are pretty confident that they have their guy stuck in a corner, and he will eventually talk. I'll say, uh, I, Francis Roy, on the advice of my counsel, wish to exercise my right to remain silent and respectively declaring any statement at this time. Although he initially said that he would not discuss the case, he began to open up a little bit more as the interrogation proceeded. Okay, as uh, as I indicated to you... uh... I'll say something. I did not kill her. Roy would go on to use the I did not kill her phrase over a 100 times during his interrogation. I did not kill her. Okay, that's fine. Uh, You're entitled to that denial. Not only did Roy deny killing her, he also denied ever knowing her. And he continues to repeat that. Never, ever met her. Never, ever met her. Never, never, um, never come across her as, you know. Never come across her. Never. The cold case detective interviewing Francis Carl Roy was clearly agitated from the arrogance that was obviously on display from Roy. So he let him have it. And then you're asking me, how could I say this, and you're saying I didn't do my homework? Is that what you're saying to me? And I'm sure this is where most detectives really enjoy their job because they have concrete proof that Roy is the killer. And this is when the cold case detective brings down the hammer. How does your DNA profile get in mm-hmm. through the vaginal swabs from semen left behind? I, okay, I don't want okay, How does that okay, happen, sir? I did not kill her. I'll explain Was that. Was it an way. accident then? No, it has nothing to do with an accident. I did not kill her. Roy's interrogation continues to run in circles, and he begins telling this crazy story about a cat. And if you can make heads or tails of this story. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. 
The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Good luck. When you look back over things, can you move? Sure. When you look back over things, yes. When you grab a cat by his tail and you swing it around, you look back now as an adult and you do back then, you shouldn't have done it. Right. Meantime, the cat runs around and gets hit by a car. Right. You're guilty of pulling the tail. Yeah, yes. Not for killing the cat. No. Okay, so you're saying that you're not blaming, you're not being blamed for killing the cat, but the cat got on the road as a result of your actions. Am I correct in that? No, you're not correct. Okay, what do you mean then? I may be missing something. The cat was dead. Pardon me? The cat was dead. The cat was dead. You put you pull the cat by the tail, tail the cut the cat the cat gets by a car. The cat was already dead. Right. I did not kill her. And I'll explain more of that later, but I did not kill her. The cat could have been already been dead before I pulled the tail. Yes. That's a scenario. Okay. Roy's story about a cat just continued to aggravate the cold case detective that was interviewing him during that interrogation. And he still doesn't really grasp exactly what it is that Roy is trying to convey. The body was already there. Mm-hmm. You said the body was already there. Yeah, the body was already there. I did not kill her. I did not kill her. This explanation of coming across Allison's body is just incomprehensible. But that does not stop his defense attorney from bringing that explanation to trial with a very disgusting caveat. This is where things start to get a little bit too graphic, and as I said before, I will do my best to minimize this ridiculous defense But Roy's lawyer did try to raise the possibility that the police had charged the wrong man. So Roy's explanation for the DNA was that he discovered Allison's naked body in a park and then molested her. And Roy's lawyer knew that this was going to be a challenge in court. I was concerned both by the fact that somebody might say, well, this is ridiculous, but moreover that it's disgusting. And the concern there is they may think, well, if you're pervert enough to do that. You get the hint. The defense was a little out of control. And the fact that he was able to take this to trial, put the Peratt family through this ridiculous defense is a disgrace enough. But... The fact that it took the jury five days to reach a verdict, that must have been a little unnerving for the family. 
It turns out the jury wasn't actually told that Roy had twice been convicted of rape or that both victims were teenagers. And another item the jury was unaware of is that one of his previous victims was abducted and bound much like that of Allison. So after those five days of deliberation, Francis Carl Roy was found guilty of the first-degree murder of 11-year-old Allison Peratt. On the courtroom steps, Leslie Peratt, Allison's mother, addressed the media briefly. Needless to say, we are deeply relieved that this day has come. Just about eight years ago, Allison's mother, Leslie, gave an interview to thatchannel.com, and I'm going to play you an excerpt from that interview, and it gives you a little bit of insight in how somebody can handle and move on and deal with tragedy. Uh, yeah, September 28 was my Allison's birthday. Uh, she was born 37 years ago, and we lost her tragically 25 years before. And I just got moved, and I often do uh, mention her uh, on Facebook. And people really respond. I think it's a way that people can reach out. And it's one of the ways, in a funny way, that in a public way, I can still be Alison's mum. And I can still talk about the love that surrounded her. And people want to know how I am. And as the years have gone by, and I've gotten stronger and stronger, and been able to say that and feel okay about saying that, uh, it warms people's hearts, and I get phenomenal feedback that just gives me the strength to keep going. Uh, in 1986, 25 years ago, uh, Alison was 11 going on 12, and she was a budding little track star. She was ready to go and compete on behalf of Ontario in the U.S., and somebody phoned our home in Midtown to Toronto and asked her to go to Varsity Stadium, a big sort of sports facility, to have a picture taken, she thought, with all her team members mm -hmm. uh, for the upcoming event. And it seemed a kind of natural thing that she would get some recognition for this. There had been a little bit of other you know, requests and publicity. So she called me, asked for permission, and off she went. And her body was found two days later in a ravine in Toronto, and she had been raped and strangled. And our lives started all over again. Well, everybody's allowed and entitled to their own bad time and, and to ignore uh, when tough things happen. I think that I've learned when really such a life-changing and, you know, gut-wrenching effects every fiber of your body happens. Uh, ultimately, you have to decide if you're going to survive and live or not. Yeah, now there was a spell that I thought, I'm not sure that I can, that I should be here because it's, you know, I, I'm so unhappy and it's not good for my son, not good for my husband. That fortunately lasted a few months uh, and then I knew if I could do nothing else in this world, I was going to be a damn good mother to my son, that evil was not going to get more people than one. And so very quickly for me, there's this sense that good and love had to prevail. 
and champion over evil. So, mm-hmm. so that was there for me for the beginning. I also was blessed in that people were so fabulous to me. So I couldn't help but notice how kind people were, how thoughtful people were. So in the middle of feeling crappy, people would do something wonderful. I believe that there is good and evil in all of us. Mm. And that good is much stronger than evil and we have to nurture and help love grow and we have to do everything to diminish evil including not paying too much attention to it. Stop looking at it all the time because you know people feed on disaster and it just makes people feel crappy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if in disaster you find those little sparks of hope for how you can rebuild, then people can feel more confident about their lives if people can understand, gee, we can survive the toughest stuff. If anybody had ever said to me, Leslie, you could survive this, I would have thought them the most insensitive, unfeeling human being. But in fact, I have actually learned over the years, because I've lost a big, deep, abiding joy in my life and every time I get super happy that sadness does creep up because joy and sorrow are are so inextricably linked and I've I've learned that as well so I'm I don't take joy for granted and when I get sorrow I now know that joy can be around the corner if I allow it to be yeah I think the great secret of of mental well-being, and I'm not the only one that ever says this, is the ability to live in the present. It's all about living in the present. What, you know, what I say, and, and like you, I've done a lot of work and a lot of yeah. thinking around resilience. You know, what I think is, first of all, you've got to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Know your own personality, because how are you going to respond, react, what you're going to need? Mm-hmm. If you're somebody that needs quiet reflection, you need that peace and quiet. If you need somebody a friend to talk to, somebody to listen to you. It's really important that, that you do that. There is no one way to survive right. a tough situation. There's a new normal. Well, I, I think eventually... Well, I think there was a line in the sand for me. Nothing was going to be normal. Our life was never going to be as it had been right. after we lost Alison. I got up the next morning, banged my head in the shower and said... Alison's dead. I mean, it, it, it had to be, a, for me, a fairly... There was no... When I say there was no looking back, of course, now I can look back and get all those wonderful, tender memories. 25 years. But it's taken time. I got her... She kind of grew back with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was easier to get her back as a, as a baby, as a joyful baby, than as a... Yeah, I call, I, I call it dance in the other direction. And this is personal or professional. And yep. what I say is, first of all, you have to dig deep to know yourself. So what, what, what's your personality? What, what's your background? Know and keep yourself in sort of good shape. Keep your relationships in good shape. So like keep your heart, your spirit. Keep your heart, your spirit. Your, you, you know, make sure you're living as good a, healthy a life. Yes. <laughs> Then you have to acknowledge what's happened. It's not about being Pollyanna and saying, this never happened, I, and I've seen people try to do that. Take the right. You have to take that time to acknowledge and absorb. So that's the A. The N is network for support. 
When tough times happen, you can't get in there alone. So you need to be ready to give support. You also need to be ready to share support. Uh, the C is a big one. That's the courage to forgive. Whoa. Courage to forgive. You're suggesting something pretty significant in yes. terms of your daughter's life. So if you can't get to forgiveness to some place in your life so that you can, in my case, let go of the person who did this and not let this person rule me. Nice. And you have to forgive yourself, which is often even tougher. So that courage and to deal with that forgiveness piece. And then it's about E, which is engaging in life. Find the little joys in life every day. And when it's impossible, go out. You know, I will go out with my clients and sort of say, okay, I want you to come back and tell me three great things that happened yesterday. Leslie Parrott, you are making the world a better place. Well, <laughs> I hope so. The world is a pretty amazing place. You just have to have your eyes wide open. And choose it. Yes, and your heart open. Yeah. Of, in your dance, can you just go over the D-A-N-C-E? Yeah. D stands for? Dig deep to know yourself. A? A is to acknowledge and absorb what's happened. N? N is to network for support. C? Courage to forgive. E? E, engage and enjoy. And in my experience, that C one uh -huh. is the toughest. That's the toughest. Yeah. But it's the one that reaps the biggest rewards. Yeah. It, it sets you free wonderful daughter called Allison who brought an awful lot of love to the world and I just want to keep doing that with and for her. Allison's mother is a really amazing woman. Thank you to thatchannel.com for the sound of Allison's mother, Leslie. And thank you again to Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for participating in episode one of Who Killed Allison Peratt. If you are interested in supporting independent journalism, such as this show, you can click on the donate button on the bottom left of whokilledamymahalovic.com. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that will also help support the show and continue to keep Amy's story in the spotlight. If you have any information regarding Amy's disappearance or the case that I mentioned in the last episode, that of the murders of Carnell Sledge and Catherine Brown, please contact the FBI office here in Cleveland at 1-800-CALL-FBI. You can also submit a tip at fbi.gov slash tips. You can always remain anonymous. And the FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information that leads to the conviction or arrest of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic. Now there is a $20,000 reward as well for the information regarding the death of Carnell Sledge and Catherine Brown. So, if you have any information in any of those cases, please don't hesitate to call your local police department or Crime Stoppers. You can always remain anonymous. Thank you so much again for listening, and be safe.
Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.